Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor in this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Sazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three straight ahead runs away. Our form now being no form and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is Sunday the 3rd of April 2022 and this is the second talk of our two-day urban retreat which we've dubbed our April Falls Retreat and we're going to be continuing to talk about uh, working with uh, anxiety and panic and fear continue on from the previous two talks and we're going to be reading from Light Comes Through Buddhist teachings on awakening to our natural intelligence. This is by Zigar Kongtrul. We left off um, when we were looking at um, cutting through our deepest attachments and fears. Uh, this is a, a practice in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, Nyen Sa Chodpa. And we'll just um, pick up where we left off. This section is, is 
headed up the movement of the entire universe. The many problems we see in the larger world today and also encounter in our own personal lives spring from the belief that the enemy or threat is outside of us. This split occurs when we forget how deeply connected we are to others and the world around us. This is not to say that mind and the phenomenal world are one and that everything we experience is a mere figment of our imagination. It simply means that what we believe to be a self and what we believe to be other than self are inextricably linked and that, in truth, the self can only exist in relation to other. Seeing them as separate is really the most primitive way of viewing and engaging our lives. This is the, the, the basic ignorance, or del delusion is maybe a better word because it's, it's an active thing, we think. Um, basic delusion that causes us so much suffering. Reifying self and other into the, this one here and that one out there. To see the connectedness or interdependence of all things is to see in a big way. It reduces the artificial separation we create between self and everything else. For instance, when we hold tightly to a self, the natural law of impermanence looms as a threat to our existence. But when we accept that we are part of this natural flow, we begin to see that the entity we cling to as a static, immutable and independent self is just a continuous stream of experience comprised of thoughts, feelings, forms and perceptions that change moment to moment. When we accept this, we become part of something much greater, the movement of the entire universe. It's a tradition within or the Zen school for uh, masters to uh, compose a verse um, at death and um, when I read this passage preparing for the talk I immediately thought of Ryokan's death verse Ryokan is the is the um, great fool from whom we quoted in the opening uh, ceremony for this two-day. And he, here is Ryokan's death verse. Showing now its front side, now its back, falls the maple leaf. A few other death verses here, which all um, express different aspects of this, this natural flow of life. This is from Koho Kenichi. 
and just a little bit of background, sometimes, um, often, masters would die sitting in the lotus posture, but there were also variations on this theme, masters who died standing, and one even who died standing on his head. And this Koho Kenichi says, to depart while seated or standing is the same, and I shall leave, all I shall leave behind is a heap of bones. In empty space I spin and soar and come down with a roar of thunder to the sea. Here's Hong Zhou's death verse, great teacher of uh, silent illumination. Illusory dreams, phantom flowers, 67 years. A white bird vanishes in the mist. Autumn waters merge with the sky. Oh, this one from Soen Nakagawa Roshi. 20th century teacher and uh, mentor to Roshi Philip Kaplow. The waves come and go, but the ocean is still there. You die, I die, it is all right too. The ocean is still there. One more Japanese one, this is Mugaku Sogen, who was um, a teacher, Rinzai teacher and um, was taught the abbess Mugai Nyodai. I did a comprehensive study to seek the real universe and finally got the answer, that is to say, all is vanity. People are vanity, and even the Buddha's teachings are vanity. Now I am spiritually awakened, and so even if you want to kill me with your huge sword, I don't mind. I already know that I am vanity. This means when you string your sword, you will just cut through a spring wind. Um, apparently, Mugaku was confronted by and threatened by a swordsman, and this was his response. And then one to finish, which is um, from a non-Buddhist source. This is um, when Ramana Mahashi was dying. He um, had, had cancer and, and was, was ill, but could hear his followers um, outside his room, wailing. He asked one of his caregivers, why do they despair? And his attendant said, it is because you are leaving them, Master. And Ramana turned to the attendant and said, where do, where do they think I could go?
when when we open to this understanding of things, this this what Dogen called um, big mind. It's also the the um, you could say the the context of our bodhisattva vow, the bodhisattva impulse, we could say. Or as it says in one of the koans in the Hikiganroku, um, and asking about the many arms and eye, hands and eyes of, of Kano and the bodhisattva of compassion, um, the master replied, it's like reaching back in the middle of the night for your pillow. Could be more natural. There's a, a story from from Tolstoy's Master and Man, which some of you will have heard before, um, and it's it tells of Vasily, who was a not a particularly sympathetic character. Um, he's described here as a money lover and a self lover. And he's left his servant Nikita to die in the snow, in the snow on a bitterly cold night. But then something something moves in him, and he returns, and he lies down on Nikita to warm him back into life, and he dies himself. And Tolstoy uh, describes his thoughts as he awakes for the last time from his frozen sleep and then dies. Yes, he awoke, but awoke a very different man to what he had been when he fell asleep. He tried to rise and could not. He tried to move his hand and could not. He tried to move his leg and could not. Then he tried to turn his head, but that also he could not do. Nikita was lying beneath him, and he was aware that Nikita was growing warm within that Nikita was growing warm and was coming back to life. It seemed to him that he was Nikita and Nikita he, and that his life was no longer within himself but within Nikita. He strained his ears till he caught the sound of the breathing. Yes, the faint, deep breathing of Nikita. Nikita is alive, he cried to himself in, tri in triumph. And therefore, so also am I. What we experience as my life results from the interdependent relationship between the outer world, the world of color, shape, sound, smell, taste, and touch, and our awareness. We cannot separate awareness, the knower, from that which is known. Is it possible, for instance, to see without a visual object, 
or to hear without a sound? And how do we isolate the context of our thoughts from the information we receive for our, from our environment, our relationships, and the imprints of our sense impressions? How can we separate our body from the elements that comprise it, or the food that we eat to keep us alive, or the causes and conditions that brought our body into existence? can be a, a useful exercise to just um, contemplate all that we rely on to exist. To, to, to become more um, conscious of the degree to which we inter-are, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, In fact, there is little consistency in what we consider to be the self and what we consider to be other. Sometimes we include our emotions as part of the self. Other times our anger or depression seems to be to haunt or even threaten us. Our thoughts too seem to define who we are as individuals, but so often they agitate or excite us as if they were existed as other. Generally, we identify the body with the self, yet when we fall ill, we often find ourselves saying, my stomach is bothering me, or my liver is giving me trouble. In other words, we, we otherize the part of us that, that is um, causing us pain. If we investigate carefully, we will inevitably conclude that to pinpoint where the self leaves off and the world begins is not really possible. Actually, actually, it just there are so many examples of, of processes that we're involved in where this is the case. But perhaps the most obvious one is the breath. Every time we inhale, we breathe in air that was so-called out there and not part of ourself. And then we exhale what um, is part of us out there into the atmosphere again. So there's this constant exchange happening. Self becomes other, other becomes self. The one thing we can observe is that everything that arises, both what we consider to be the self and what we consider to be other than self, does, throw, does so through a relationship of interdependence. We can, we can th um, think here of some of the things that we, that we quickly dis disown. Think about all our different um, bodily excretions. All the, the CO2 that we emit, the rubbish we throw away. Now just imagine yourself standing with all of, all of what you've um, 
expelled or excluded or thrown away in a great big pile behind you. Can we really say that that's not us? Or on the other side, how we may want to take sole credit for uh, achievements, when if we look deeply into those things, we find that that they are even our achievements are dependent on so many other people and and forces and things, beings. Next sec section is headed, The Singular Nature of Emptiness. All phenomena depend on other in order to arise, express themselves, and fall away. There is nothing that can be found to exist on its own, independent and separate from everything else. That self and other lack clearly defined boundaries does not then mean that we are thrown into a vague state of not knowing who we are and how to relate the world, to relate to the world, or that we lose our discerning intelligence. It simply means that through loosening the clinging mind, the clinging we have to our small constricted notion of self, we begin to relax into the true nature of all phenomena, the non-dual state of emptiness that transcends both self and other. We, could, we can say that the, 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 our, our self is a useful convention for navigating the world, but then it's like a, a kind of a stick-on label that we can can um, conveniently use at times, there's things like the sticky stuff on that label. Instead of coming off easily, it gets, we get fused with it and then it becomes a problem. The true nature of pheno all phenomena, the non-dual state of emptiness. Emptiness doesn't mean nothingness. It's referring to this, this um, not being not being able to separate anything out from the rest of existence. Having gone beyond dualistic mind, we can enjoy the single unit of our, our own profound Dharmakaya nature. The Dharmakaya is is one of the terms that used to point to um, the the perfect, pure world of uh, uh, phenomena, all empty and in dynamic relation. The singularity of emptiness is not single as opposed to many. It is a state beyond one or two, beyond subject and object, and the self and the world outside. It is the singular nature of all things. So this, the singular nature of this cup. 
the singular nature of the traffic outside the window. The singular nature of this blue robe. Upon recognizing the nature of emptiness, our own delusion, the false duality of subject and object, cracks apart and dissolves. This relieves us of the heaviness produced by the subtle underlying belief that things have a separate or solid nature. At the same time, we apprehend the interconnectedness of everything, and this gives a greater vision to our lives. Why direct experience of emptiness is, is so emphasized in Zen? Usually, our first experience of this is, is very fleeting. Um, and when we, we have these tip of the tongue tastes of this other way of experiencing things, um, subject and object do, do uh, reassert themselves. Um, this notion of subject and object is very embedded in our, our habit patterns. But when we get these glimpses of another way of seeing things, they, they, these, we're not so beholden to this, to this uh, delusion. It becomes weakened, and we can work on weakening it further. Another Tibetan teacher, Yala um, Yangonpa, um, referred to it um, in a verse. He said, As an old parchment that curls around itself, negative tendencies tend to come back. New habits are easily destroyed by circumstances. The new habits that come out of our new way of seeing. You will not cut through delusion in an instant. All you, you who consider yourselves great meditators spend more time in meditation. You will not cut through delusion in an instant. It's an ongoing process, also following uh, insight into emptiness. The next section is headed up. Conviction. Cultivating a deep conviction in the view of emptiness is what the practice of Nyensa Chodpa is all about. Nyensa refers to that which haunts us, our clinging to the self and all the fears and delusions that this produces. The delusions. We can each, you can each identify for ourselves things that, that haunt us, as he says here. It may be regrets over something we did or something we didn't do. It may be strongly held notions we have about our, our worth. But we can we can take heart from from this story of of uh, Vasili, who was not a particularly virtuous character, and yet had this this experienced in, in his dying 
um, a kind of redemption. He sees beyond his small self encapsulated in his body to something much greater. So we can, we can really be hopeful that uh, there is this, this potential in us for redemption. Some people have a very strong conviction that they can't change. But that goes against the, the whole nature of the universe as we know it. Because change is inevitable. We can really put our trust in that, if nothing else. There's, there's a story in um, the classical, classical Buddhist suttas of um, Angulimala, who was a serial killer, and then met the Buddha, seeing him as his, one of his potential victims, and uh, eventually became an arhat. He still had to reap what he'd sown. People would recognize him and beat him up regularly as he wandered with the other monks. But, but he's an ex another example of um, the fact that, that uh, redemption is, is possible even for the, the most um, people with the most deep, dark karma. Um, Dalai Lama said, human potential is the same for all. Your feeling, I am no value, I am of no value, is wrong, absolutely wrong. You're deceiving yourself. Zikyal Rinpoche continues. Impressed by the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa's unwavering confidence in the view of emptiness, the ogress of the rock, while attempting to haunt and frighten him, made this famous statement, which illustrates the view of Nyensa Chodpa very well. She said, this demon of your own tendencies arises from your mind. If you don't recognize the empty nature of your mind, I'm not going to leave just because you tell me to go. If you don't realize that your mind is empty, there are many more demons beside myself. But if you recognize the empty nature of your own mind, adverse circumstances will serve only to sustain you, and even I, ogress of the rock, will be at your bidding. He says, goes on to say, he, to understand emptiness conceptually is not enough. We need to understand it through direct experience. 
so that when the mechanism of self-clinging is challenged, we can rest in this view with confidence. We might um, connect um, this, this ogress of the rock back possibly to Pan. Pan, remember, the Greek god, um, lived and was found in the depths of caves. And here this ogress is of the rock, rock being ancient material of the earth. So again, understanding that our, um, our dualistic mind, our fearful mind, comes from a very deep place in us. And note also that she doesn't say, if you see into the nature of your mind, I will be destroyed. She says, if you see into the nature of, and the emptiness of the mind, I will be at your service. I will be at your bidding. So there's hope that we can, we can um, harness our deepest fears and anxieties and have them inform us because that's if we can turn and face them, then, then we, we can learn from, the responses, from our responses to things. When challenging circumstances arise, we cannot just conceptually patch things up with ideas we have about emptiness, merely thinking everything is empty, does little service at such times. It is like walking into a dimly lit room, seeing a rope on the ground and mistaking it for a snake. We can tell ourselves, it's a rope, it's a rope, it's a rope, all we want. But unless we turn on the light and see for ourselves, we will never be convinced that it is not a snake and our fear will remain. When we turn on the light, we can see through direct experience that what we mistook for a snake was actually a rope and our fear lifts. In the same way, when we realize the empty nature of the self, and the world around us, we free ourselves from the clinging and fear that comes with it. It is essential that we have conviction based upon experience, no matter how great or small the, that experience is. And this is exactly the emphasis in Zen, to have this direct experience, no matter how small or great, and then to put our confidence in it, to trust it. This, this is our... Um, our faith mind, we would say, uh, in Zen. Without this conviction, we may run up against a lot of doubts about our meditation practice when difficult circumstances surface. We may wonder why our meditation isn't working. If meditation does not serve us in difficult times, what can we do to rescue ourselves from the horror and fear that we have inside? We think to ourselves, what about all the years of practice we have done? Were we just fooling ourselves? Was our practice ever genuine at all? I wonder if there's any anyone in this room who might um, find this quite familiar. My guess is probably more than, more than half, if not more than that. 
the people here who have experienced this. And it can be very, very painful thinking in this way. In times like these, we need not get discouraged about our ability to practice. Coupled with open-minded questioning, challenging serpent circumstances can help deepen and clarify the purpose of our path because they expose how far our practice has penetrated to the core of self-clinging. Although these experiences often shock or disturb us, they bring our attention to the immediate experience of clinging and the pain it generates, and we begin to think about letting go. This is challenging experiences we could think here of um, death of somebody we love or sickness or a family member with a serious addiction. Rumi says in this regard about these tests that we have to face, he says, there is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. Only those who hurt so hard they can't hope. When we, we get to that place, that, that um, rock bottom, and it may not be a co coincidence that we call it the rock bottom, to that, to that hard place where we, we find we, we can't go back and we can't go forward. We may have had the experience of letting go of our clinging and resting in the nature of emptiness many times in the past, but not yet developed the trust or conviction in that experience. In the moment that our ordinary confused perceptions collapse, we may feel some certainty, but unless we trust that experience, it will not affect the momentum of our ordinary confused habits. Quickly, we will return to believing in our experience as solid and real. However, if we are able to trust the direct experience of emptiness, we can, through hindsight, bridge that understanding with our present experience. We rely on the recollection of our direct encounter with the view to change the way we ordinarily respond to difficult situations. Well, our time is up. We'll finish here and recite the four vows. without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. 
I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.